0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Yoga Journeys, a podcast focused on sharing and celebrating inspiring stories of transformation through the practice of yoga. I am your host, Katherine Kennedy. This podcast came about after having experienced my own transformation, growth, and healing through my yoga practice. I wanted to share these life-changing tools with others, so I became a yoga teacher after several years of training. Throughout my years of teaching and practicing, I've talked with many other practitioners and teachers and have heard so many of the same stories over and over again and wanted to create this platform for sharing those stories. So here we are. Our guest this week is Debbie Dilley, who is a Salt Lake City, Utah-based yoga instructor. Thank you so much again, Debbie, for sharing your story this week. I'm gonna go ahead and start off with our first question. How has yoga helped you, uh, you know, transform your life? How has it helped you grow in different ways? How has it inspired you to really shift what you're doing uh, in ways that, is, that are both you felt like that was what you were going for, but then also in ways that you had no idea that it could help you in that way?
1: Okay. Um, so whenever I have a new, new student, there's the spiel that I give. And it's because when people come in and the first time they see me, they may have guessed that I was larger, but I don't really believe in putting up a lot of photos. I I hate that part of the yoga culture in which you have to have all these photos of yourself and these weird poses. And that seems, it's very performative to me. And that's not why I do yoga. And so a lot of times people will come in and they have this look on their face like, oh, she really is big. So, (laughs) but um, I always kind of sit down and I give them the story. So it's probably the best thing is to kind of give you the origin story that I give to everybody. So first of all, I always have to come out as fat, which seems really strange. It's very clear from me, but people are very afraid of the word. And um, I think from our first workshop, I came out as fat in the, like in my introduction, (laughs) just because people do tiptoe around it and they don't need to. And if you tiptoe around it with a peer in a yoga teacher training, you're going to tiptoe around it with a student, and you're going to other them in the process. So, And I've had plenty of uh, students tell me afterwards, thank you for calling yourself fat. Thank you for saying you're big, fat, fatty, and that you rub your own belly for luck. Like that made them feel better (laughs) and that it was okay to be who you are. I've been teaching for over seven years now. And one of the first things I tell people is that my size has not changed. I am not here for weight loss. In fact, before I went into my yoga teacher training, I had been going to yoga classes and I really enjoyed it. I liked how my body felt. I liked it because I'm naturally flexible. So I felt like I could excel a little bit in that. But I just like to be able to move my body. I did get frustrated when we would be in certain poses and it would hurt because of the way gravity works on my body. Or things like I just needed maybe one or two seconds more to make a transition because you're going through a bunch of sun salutations very quickly. If you're going back into that lunge, uh, when you come back into it, I knee myself in my own belly. And so I have to like swing my leg out a little bit and there's a little bit of adjustment, and it takes just a couple seconds. But I had been, I had gotten this yoga book from a plus size model. I don't even, I haven't even heard of her in years. I don't even know where she is anymore. But she, her book kind of made me see yoga in a different way, and learning how to do modifications to help my own body. So, you know, at the time I was typing a lot and it would hurt to be on your hands and knees. So she said, go on your forearms and it opened up this whole new space for me. And I got gotten a group on, and I was going to another yoga studio that there's not a lot of size diversity in Utah. And so walking in, I mean, everybody is of kind of Norwegian, Swedish descent. <laughs> So the standard body type is tall, incredibly thin, and blonde in Utah. And I am not any of those. (laughs) And so you you feel kind of othered when you go into different places. But I found a studio that I felt somewhat comfortable with. I get pretty in-your-face with, are you going to accept me or not? So they seem to be pretty open to that. but there was another local studio that had a yoga for larger bodies class. And I was like, this is it, this is it, finally a class just for me. So I go to the class and the teacher was larger. I appreciated that when I walked in, but she was a substitute. And the person who had developed the class had left the state. And she treated it just like any other yoga class. She was paying more attention to her friends who were joining her in the class she had us on her hands and knees for over half the class. And I was in pain, so I went down on my forearms. There were two women who were next to me, and they had said it was their first class ever. And I could, one of them was in tears. I could see her crying. She was in so much pain. And I kept trying to, like, do that, look, look over at me, do this. But then again, that made me the creepy person in the yoga class, trying to <laughs> distract somebody else from, their, from being on their mat. And I was furious. I was so furious. And I think when you talk about changes in mindset, rather than just being angry, I used that emotion, because emotions are tools. It's how you wield them. And I used that particular opportunity to decide how I was going to change things. And the next day I enrolled in teacher training. And... At the particular place I was doing it at, it took a full year. And of course, I came out as fat in the first session. (laughs) But it took five months before the owner of the studio felt comfortable telling me about certain anatomy things, about why I was having struggles with doing headstands, for example. And it was funny because my first first week and how they did their 200 hour was that it was pretty much stationary. You could hop in at any time during the year. And so when I hopped in, they were doing inversions that day, and that was not happening. And so five months after we did a heavy inversion thing, she finally tells me, oh, being upside down, you're gonna put all this weight on your heart and it's not used to holding weight. Like, Why did, why'd you wait that long? And she told me it was because she grew up being the fat girl and she had issues with it. I don't think she grew up being the fat girl. <laughs> But I think that so many women get shamed for not being a particular size that they all, everybody grows up feeling like they were the fat girl in some respect, unless you're like me, who really truly was always, <laughs> always big. So while I was doing that teacher training, I also did a certification in curvy yoga, and I was one of the the first the first group of people that Anna who had founded that program, was able to train. And she also, I was working for the Sexual Assault Coalition in Utah. She used to work for a domestic violence coalition in Tennessee. So we were able to start talking about trauma and how that manifests into the body. And so a lot of my practice now has been, let's talk about the emotions that come up when we move. Let's talk about how we use our emotions as tools rather than something that we let ourselves wallow in most of my students are they fit into kind of two categories but the categories overlap a lot so main category they have a body type like mine and they really want to go to they they go to the gyms they go to the studios and they get looks and it's kind of a shaming environment where you're supposed to be going into a place that would help you change your body so that you could conform to the ideals of society, but then you get kind of shamed for coming in, like, oh, how dare you come into my space? But then also just wanting a place where they can feel accepted, and that it's okay to love yourself how you are, because honestly, if you're a horrible person fat, you're still gonna be a horrible person thin, unless you work on that part of your your personality. So, and I do, when we talk about my students who are larger, I do get a lot of students who come in and they've just had gastric bypass surgery. And that, that's a rough, that's a rough one because I do not believe in that. So trying to be a good, strong support for them and also help them with their new and changing body, that can be, that can be a little bit difficult because I try not to seem like I'm making a value judgment against their choice. They have chosen. It was their body, their choice, and I need to respect that, even if I disagree with how that, how that manifests. The other group of people who come to my classes are those with a trauma past. Either they are trauma first responders, and most trauma workers have a trauma past, or they're people who have been recommended to me as being a trauma-informed safe space. And teaching out of my home really works well for that taught at larger studios. I don't like large classes. I really like to be able to see it when I tell someone to do a pose and I say I teach consent-based yoga. Consent being you know your body better than anyone else. So if I say we're going to do a pose and your first response is there is no way my body is doing that, (laughs) then you don't do it. And so in a larger class, I can't see that look of distress on someone's face when I've asked the group to do something and they can't. In a smaller class, I can see it immediately and I can throw over a bolster or a block really quickly or come up with a modification on the fly for them. So I do like that personal connection. And I think when we talk about relationships with... With yoga, I mean, that decision to take my anger and use it to help other people, I'm helping myself. My yoga practice has changed so much since teaching. And apparently this is making me emotional. I'm like tearing up a bit. But I have found so much more strength in teaching and sharing what I have learned and joining people on the journey that they're taking through yoga than I've ever felt in my own personal relationship with the map,
0: Can you talk a little bit more about that, that trauma connection? What brought you to that space and helping people through their trauma
1: work? Well, one, I was working at the Sexual Assault Coalition at the time, but even then, getting the job at the Sexual Assault Coalition was a weird serendipity thing. I was working at another place, completely different field, and it was not going well. <laughs> and so I was applying to get any, any job I possibly could. And so when I started working at the Sexual Assault Coalition, I remember having a conversation with a coworker, and we were talking about my ex-husband, who I've described in many situations is a lifetime channel miniseries, not a movie, full mini series to explain everything that went on. And as I was telling her about this, I was minimizing what had happened and, you know, taking a lot of blame for what had happened. And we were tabling at the time and she stopped me and she gave me this handout. It's called a power and control wheel. And it was created by uh, the was it university of Duluth. And it has eight, it's a wheel with eight different sections in it and it talks about the uh, the main facets of abusive relationships, how those manifest. And she made me circle everything on that list that he'd done to me. And when I thought of like domestic violence and sexual violence, you think of a stranger attacking somebody or in domestic violence, somebody who's being beaten constantly the only thing on that list that he had not done was to physically hit me but the entire seven other spokes were completely filled and it was this huge epiphany moment for me because i hadn't even considered that that's what had happened and even trying to get my my family to understand that was was really difficult and that's been part of the healing process. And it was around that time that I began to come back to yoga. And then it was really this whole place of, this really raw place apparently still, (laughs) of discovering things about myself that I had been blaming myself for so much and that I didn't need to. And coming to terms with that and then wanting to kind of give back to the people who gave to me. So for that one coworker who handed me that, that goofy little handout, that was life-changing for me. And I'd only been with the coalition for maybe a month. You know, I hadn't even gone through my trainings yet. And it was, it was such a powerful moment for me. And at that point, I was able to kind of discover what I was going through. I had a very supportive executive director who wanted me to research and to learn. She supported a lot of professional development. And she was really open to the fact that, I'm exploring yoga, what if, what if we brought this to the victim advocates that were training how to do their jobs? And she indulged me in that. We, for a year, we offered a free, a free morning yoga class for victim advocates. Now as to whether or not they came is a completely different matter. <laughs> because it takes time for people to get to the point of, I'm dealing with so much stress, I'm dealing with so much adrenaline pushing through my body, that I know I need to move, I know I need to calm down, my doctor keeps telling me that I need to meditate. But I don't know how to do that. And so it's that one-on-one conversation that kind of brings that in of, okay, this is manageable. Let me show you how this is manageable. Small little changes will drastically affect your life. And even though I am no longer working for the Sexual Assault Coalition and most of my empowerment yoga, all that stuff is kind of done under my own business now, I still volunteer and spend my time going and training victim advocates on self-care and how to work through the trauma that they are helping their clients through, but then also their own personal trauma and what, what sticks to you. Cause a lot of the stuff sticks to you. And that's been very rewarding for me because I'm still giving back. I'm still being able to tell people like, Oh, you're told to go and meditate. Let's do a three-minute meditation in the middle of the presentation and I'll show you how easy that part was. But just three minutes, you'll feel better. And so, I don't know, that was kind of a meandering, here's, here's how you go through trauma, but that's how trauma is. It kind of goes in a spiral. So, you know, you've got the incident that happens and then life happens and you think everything's good and then something triggers you and then you have to deal with that again and then it just keeps spiraling and it just kind of goes on. It it lessens over time. And I think knowing that that's how it works and affects people makes it easier for me as a teacher to be okay with the fact that I have students who will come intensely for three, four weeks at a time and then drop off the face of the earth for about a year and then they come right back to class. And it's like nothing ever happened because I know exactly what they're going through. Something has sparked it. They're spiraling. They're trying to get back on track. And if they know that I'm still going to be here for them and I'm not going to judge them for needing to take time off, then I feel like that's, that's a good thing to offer. Now, as a business plan, it's horrible. But, <laughs> but I think... <laughs> But I, I prefer personally to be able to know that I can be a point of stability for people because I need the stability myself. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like the journey is very serendipitous. It's like exactly what you needed came to you at the right time. And do you share that story or any stories a lot with your students or vice versa? Do they share theirs with you?
1: Oh, yes. I get lots of stories because, I mean, the second I tell people and I tell them that in the spiel, the opening spiel about this is, you know, this is a trauma-informed space. And I'll tell them most of the trauma-informed stuff you will never see. And that is by design. And I mean, little things like me explaining to them the layout of the house and how the front door is always locked and the back door is always locked. They're just thinking that I'm being really kind. (laughs) But what I'm doing is, you know, when you have someone who has a startle response, they're hypervigilant, they need to know where all the exits are. So that's immediately discussed. And, um, and I don't tell them that that's part of the trauma informed thing. So I'll even tell them like, okay, we have the main floor. There are people who live upstairs. Sometimes you'll hear noises if it's quiet and we don't have the fans on. Sometimes you'll hear that front door close to the the house. So don't be worried that you hear that. And I feel like if I, part of being trauma informed is making sure that you are preparing them for any possibilities. And also, I mean, it's part of the trauma form teaching model is, you always do some or you say what you're gonna do before you do it. So if you're gonna get up from your place where you've been presenting for the entire time and you're gonna go grab something on the other side of the room, or if you are going to be walking around during Shavasana um, or getting up to adjust the sound or something like that, I always say it beforehand um, so that I can prepare people. But then also what I'm doing is I'm establishing that connection of that I am a person who does what they say. And that that's a way of establishing trust. But those are facets of trauma-informed teaching that people don't, don't ever know. You know. And when I talk about consent in my classes, I'm never talking about it as, can I come and touch you? That's, that's a completely different, separate you know, discussion. And I tell people that I'm never gonna touch you without your permission. And I'm never gonna ask your permission in a way that other people can see what your answer is. The sentiment behind things like uh, the consent cards in yoga classes where you've got like a red card or a green card, I understand the sentiment of those. And it's a way of saying, you know, don't touch, it's okay to touch. But everyone else in the room can kind of see that. So if you're having a red card day, People, are, people may be looking at that going, oh, well, why are they having that day? So out of peer pressure, someone may put a green card up, even when they don't want to be touched. And so if somebody asks me for a physical assist, not an issue. But I'm not going to come up and grab somebody. That actually happened in my teacher training the first day. Someone came up and grabbed another person from behind in Downward Dog. And I was like, whoa, stop it all about. They, they were so annoyed with me. <laughs> But it's was like, you can't just go up and grab someone from their hips from behind. What if they're a rape survivor and that's how they were attacked? Like they can't see you. So all of a sudden grabbing somebody and people in the room were like, oh, I didn't realize that was a thing. And I had to re- remind myself at that particular time that not everyone has had the exposure I have had to people who have come up with trauma. So when I explain the things about being trauma-informed, when I tell them that this comes from me being a worker and working and training people who work with victims, I immediately become a safe space. And there are certain students who, it's very interesting because sometimes it's hard to get them out the door (laughs) after class, but they will purposely take my later classes, which normally have a lower enrollment rate, just so that they can stay a little bit longer and talk to me. And I have to acknowledge that that's them showing that I have, that they have trust in me, that they're showing me that they see that I'm a person of integrity and I have to honor that. I've had a lot of people tell me their stories. I've had a lot of people who just go, I can't tell you right now, but I'm glad that you, you could understand if I told you the details. And so establishing a safe space and holding that safe space is really important It also happens to be in my safe space that I'm inviting people into. And for the most part, I've never had anybody dishonor that. And I I have had moments where I'm like, I'm inviting anyone from the random public to come into my house. That's a little messed up. But (laughs) I also don't wanna live in a world in which I fear all the time. We get enough of that from our politics and reading the news. I don't want to believe that every man I meet is a rapist because I know statistically that that is not true. So yeah, I do, I do place myself at some risk inviting people into my home, but everyone's been very respectful of that, very respectful. So when you talk about serendipity, people ask me, when they hear about the different things I've done and they look at my resume, they're like, "And this all connects how? <laughs> it, it does. There's a thread between it. And the, the common thread between all of the work I've done is human rights of reestablishing human dignity. And you do that on the yoga mat just as much as you do that at a domestic violence shelter or you know you do that another side part of my business is I do nonprofit um, financial management and consulting for small nonprofits. I love scrappy nonprofits. They change the world. And and they do it with like you know a bobby pin and a you know rubber band like they'll build a shelter out of that. <laughs> and so I love working with these small organizations because they really do change everything. And part, part of that, you know, human rights and human dignity, even in doing, you know, the bookkeeping consulting work that I do is I'm ensuring that those workers who are passionate about what they do have the financial stability to continue helping other people. And so that's also establishing human dignity. And that's a lot of what. You know, when you talk about yoga being connection, you know, and connection to source, it is also that connection to what makes us human and accepting what makes us human, even when we have our flawed days, which is most days. But we, you know, that's why it's a practice. You know, you practice an instrument, you play a bad note, you still keep practicing. (laughs) You don't throw it down and say, I'm never going to do it again, unless you're a teenager. But (laughs) it's still (laughs) it's still a process that you know we have to you know it's a practice you have good days you have bad days and i think you know taking that it kind of spirals out from the mat and it really does permeate everything i do no matter how weird they all those little facets of things that i do are fear is
0: in abundance uh in our culture can render people to a space of not wanting to move forward and I think the the safety and the consistency and the the trust that you have provided your practitioners that come to you in your space in your home is beautiful it's a beautiful thing especially with everything that's happening around us.
1: I spent, uh, last week I was in England with my partner and um, we've been talking about the possibility of me moving eastward, whether that be um, Maine is actually on the possible list. And <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple jobs I'm thinking of applying for, but um, moving eastward or even relocating to, to England as a possibility. And so we've been chatting about it and I was looking around and we were closing up his dad's house. His, his dad passed away about a year and a half ago and we were selling the house. And it is the family. I mean, he was born in the house. Like they brought a midwife into the house. And they were the first people to ever live in that house. And so you know, it was a really kind of emotional time. But I was paying attention to the culture, going, you know, could I live here? Could I adapt to this? They had a fireworks display. It was the, you know, they, where he lives in Pool, um, every Thursday during the summer, they have a big street festival. And then they have uh, fireworks over the water. And I remember looking at him going, I don't think I've seen fireworks without hearing Neil Diamonds were coming to America playing. And <laughs> he's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, there is no patriotic music happening. I'm having some cognitive dissonance here. <laughs> like, it's not right. <laughs> um, and I told him, I'm like, I'm also not having to fear because now we can't go into these public celebrations without the fear of someone bringing in a gun. And, um, you know, just the idea that because I was really on edge and some of that on edgeness in crowds does have to, stems back from the ex-husband, um, things that I will probably never get over. But that was really difficult for me. And then we were in his neighborhood and I was watching kids just running around and playing and going over to each other's houses and saying, hey, can so-and-so play? And they were playing soccer in the street. And I have not seen that in 30 years. He knew all of his neighbors. I know like my landlord who lives across the street. And I know the name of one of the people in my building, right? And I think we've lost that sense of community. And that contributes to the fears that we're all, you know, align together. So at least I've been trying to build a community here, but I think a lot of Americans have forgotten what that looks like. Let's just make sure that we're serving the people who need the yoga. Let's make sure that not all of our work is being done to really wealthy folks. You know, are we, are we serving marginalized communities? Are we working with, you know, populations that can't afford a $20 drop-in rate at a yoga studio? And Working out of my own home means I get to choose my own prices. So I, I mean, I have a $10 drop-in rate. That's my standard rate. And I know I should be charging more for private sessions, but those are $30 an hour. And I let people bring up to three people because I want to make it accessible. I think that when we talk about movement on the mat and accessibility, we also have to think about financial and social accessibility as well. And those are really important to me is also not a good business plan. But <laughs> I think I've resigned myself that I'm never going to be a multimillionaire. But at least I'll know that I've lived a good life and I've helped other people. So.
0: And, and that only gives back to you tenfold. honestly. Uh, I think the access and equity work that you're doing as well is so important. The number one thing is, is just getting out there and, and trying to bring it to as many people as possible. Debbie, thank you so much again for taking the time to share your story. I hope that in the future, if you have anything else to share, that you'll come back and join us. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to today's episode of Yoga Journeys, inspiring stories of transformation, growth, and healing. We'll have another episode ready for you soon, but until then, I hope you have a wonderful day.